is marriage is under attack now in a way that it's not been for maybe ever in this country. And the whole definition of marriage, not just on the gay marriage side of things. Gay marriage is a complete oxymoron, by the way. It, it doesn't exist. You have to redefine marriage in order to make that happen. Now, the Christian idea of marriage is very different. And I think it's very important that we understand this. I, I picked this up from Lewis. I love this. Let me quote it. The Christian idea of marriage is based on Christ's words that a man and a wife are to be regarded as a single organism. For that is what the words one flesh would be in modern English. And the Christian believes that when he said this, he was not expressing a sentiment but stating a fact. Just as one is stating a fact when one says that a lock and its key are one mechanism or that a violin and a bow are one musical instrument. The inventor of the human machine was telling us that its two halves, the male and the female, were made to be combined together in parts, not simply on the sexual level, but totally combined. The monstrosity of sexual intercourse outside marriage is that those who, uh, are indulge, those who indulge in it are trying to isolate one kind of union, sexual, from all the other kinds of union which were intended to go along with it and to make up the total union. Some people have this notion of Christian teaching about marriage and sex and so on as being kind of prudish and old-fashioned and so on. It's actually not. What you're being taught this morning is incredibly radical. It's, in, it's incredibly explicit and direct and inc incredibly important. Let me also throw in a little bit of Marxism here, just for those of you who like to quote the Communist Manifesto. Um, it says this, So this is man, a sexual, temporal, and material being who without exception is enmeshed and, as it seems, hopelessly trapped in the structures of these three dimensions. Well, Marx was picking up what Paul teaches here in Ephesians about the three elements, husbands and wives, sexual, parents and children, temporal, and employers and employees, the material. All of us struggle with these things, and all of us say, well, if only God would help us, if only God would teach us. Well, he does help us, and he does teach us. We're, as I say, this evening we're going to look at the whole relationships involved in work and what that means, and I, I would encourage you to come and hear that because, again, it, like everything in the Bible, it's incredibly appropriate and incredibly radical. We do not teach Jesus Christ in a vacuum. We don't teach salvation, and, and there are Christians who want to do this, who want to say, give me the gospel bit. And what they mean by that is, give me the bit that tells me how to get to heaven, that tells me that Jesus loves me, that tells me how my sins can be forgiven, and then let me get on with my life. And then there are other Christians who say, no, 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 give me the practical stuff. But in reality, everything in the Bible is practical, and everything in the Bible is gospel. And that includes these passages. I love what Luther called these verses of Ephesians 5, 22 onwards. He called them the house and the house tables of the Christian family. If you want to understand the whole passage, and I'm talking about Ephesians 5, 22, right through to chapter 6, verse 9, they are all about submission. Wives to husbands, children to parents, and slaves to masters. And immediately, of course, if you're listening at all, and if you've got half a brain, your hackles begin to rise. We live in what is supposed to be an age of emancipation and freedom. Women have been liberated, so how can we go back to slavery? Which woman today is going to vow in their wedding vow 
the promise to obey. Just so um, anachronistic. And often it's not included in the vows because of the misunderstanding about it. But how can this work? Paul has been arguing for a church in Ephesians, which is one where there is complete oneness in Christ of all peoples, regardless of culture, gender, and so on. He is not here erecting new barriers of age, sex, and rank. These verses teach us the dignity of womanhood, the dignity of manhood, the dignity of childhood, the dignity of servanthood, and they teach the equality before God of all human beings. The Christian church teaches and believes what the Scriptures say, that all human beings are made in the image of God, and that there is a deep unity of all believers in Christ. And when we talk about submission, we are not talking here about inferiority and superiority. Luther correctly points to the distinction between the office and the person. Equality of worth is not equality of role. These passages teach us there's an authority given to the husband, the parent, and the employer, if you like, an authority that derives from God, that is limited, that is not absolute, but is there, an authority that is not tyranny. That's the background, and there's so much in that to, com- to unpack, and if you haven't got questions about it, I, I, I probably don't believe you, to be honest. I, the, you're looking at this, and you're trying to understand, what does this mean? How does this apply? How does this affect me? And if you haven't got questions, you're either one of these people who's already worked out what it means, and basically you can deflect anything that's said, and that's a shame. Because we should be asking God to speak to us and, and God to, to change us. And that applies to me as well. I've, uh, believe it or not, changed my views many times as I study through this and think through this and allow God uh, to challenge. So we'll follow in the sequence here. Uh, we're only going to deal with the connection here between husbands and wives. And we'll start with verses 22 to 24. Wives, submit to your husbands as the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is a savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should, to, should submit to their husbands in everything. And at this point, if you're not a Christian, you're going to say, that's why I'm not a Christian. This is so out of date. This is so Victorian. This is so medieval. And all the other terms that you want to, to take on board. I'm, I'm going to do something that you may consider to be a little strange. I'm just going to ask you to be open-minded and listen to what is said before you make a judgment on it. I know it's uncomfortable. In fact, I know that there are many Christians here who find these words uncomfortable. And so what? Sometimes God wants to make us feel uncomfortable. Now, the idea of the headship of the husband is clearly stated in 1 Corinthians 11 and 1 Timothy 2, where he expounds this a bit more. He says that the woman is made out of man, man comes from woman. They are dependent, therefore, on one another. But he talks about the order and the purpose, uh, the mode and the purpose of the creation of Eve. Now, you can argue, and I, I, I would argue, that there are cultural aspects in the application of the principle of headship. So, for example, head covering, and perhaps even a woman keeping silent. These are, I, I would argue that these are cultural applications of the basic principle. But the concept of headship of the man, not of men in general, but of in the relationship of husband and wife, 
that the husband is the head of the wife, that concept is not cultural. That concept is creational. It's not chauvinism, as one man says. It's creationism. It's the teaching of Genesis 1 and 2. It's the teaching before the fall. It's not a result of man's sin. In fact, conflict between men and women in the relationship of marriage comes as a result of the fall. This is the teaching that Jesus went back to, and culture cannot destroy creation. Human sexuality is part and parcel of our humanness. There is a difference between men and women. There are obvious physiological and psychological differences. It is not the case that all differences between men and women are just culturally orientated. The culture very often stems from something that actually exists. We are equal, but we are not identical. Equality and complementarity are vital. And I do think that is very, very important. We live in an age of confused sexuality where a deliberate attempt is being made to say that men and women are effectively the same. So you have a manufacturer like Calvin Klein deliberately trying to create androgynous perfumes or or clothing or whatever. And hey, if you want to dress like a woman, why not? And if you want to, to smell like a man, why not? You want to get drunk like men do? Fine. You know, the whole aspect of how that is seen in our culture, you see it spreading in so many different ways. It's not to say that what people perceive as a traditional view of men and women, as we'll come to that, is uh, that what we're arguing for is the biblical view. Just stick with this. You have to stick with it for the whole thing, or you kind of, you're just going to pick out bits that will annoy you or will cause you to agree. In terms of marriage, God has given to the man a headship role. And it is only within that that both the man and the woman will find their true God-given roles, not in rebellion, but in voluntary and joyful submission. If, as people often say, well, our marriage is an equal partnership, who are you kidding? What does that mean? Because there's two of you, and one votes this way and one votes that way. Who has the casting vote? That is a recipe for conflict all the time. How are you going to get one and one to... I mean, if they perfectly agree all the time, it'd be wonderful, isn't it? But that marriage doesn't exist. If they perfectly agree, it's either because one person is incredibly dominant and forces the other one, whether physically or whether emotionally, whether by nagging, whether by... And men can nag too, by the way. Whether by, by force of personality. It doesn't make for a good relationship. So here is the Bible's solution to that. In our culture, what says is you try it. If it doesn't work, you forget it. You split up. But that doesn't create for stable families. It doesn't create for a stable community. So in this aspect, Paul is saying to those women who are married, submit to your husbands. Now consider the culture of their time. If you were Jewish, a Jewish man, you had a very low view of women. The morning prayer in one of the Jewish prayer books was this, O Lord, I thank you that you have not made me a Gentile, a slave, or a woman, because women were not equal. A woman was to be a person, but very often treated as a thing. In the Greek culture, the Greek man, and this sounds familiar, expected the wife to run his home 
care for his legitimate children, but to find his pleasure and companionship elsewhere. So it was okay for a man to engage prostitutes, for example, but the woman was not expected to do that. Home and family life in Greek culture were nearly extinct. In the Roman culture, more than any other culture at that time, the marriage bond was falling apart. Let me quote, a girl was completely under her father's, a wife completely under her husband's power. She was his slave. Her life was one of legal incapacity, which amounted to enslavement, while her status was described as imbecilous, idiotic. So if you were a woman in this culture, and you were a Jewish woman, then men were considered superior to you. If you were a Greek woman, then you, and you got married, and there was basically no other way for you to survive than to do that, and you got married, then your husband can do what he pleased. If you were a Roman woman, it was even worse than that. You were, in effect, a slave. And Christianity came in and completely changed all that. And that is the context in which you have to read this. So why is Paul there speaking about headship and submission? He's not trying to establish stereotypes of masculine and feminine behavior. Any Christian man who argues, and it's usually a Christian man who would argue this, that the woman shops, cooks, cleans, feeds, bathes, and changes babies, needs to go and uh, start thinking a little bit. The German phrase that women are for kinder, kirker, and kuka, uh, you can work it out, is wrong. It's just simply wrong. And sadly, the church has sometimes gone along with that cultural emphasis and kind of baptized it and gave it a Christian emphasis. But that is not what Paul is speaking of here. Headship in Paul's terms, we find in uh, Colossians 4, verses 15 to 16, and instead speaking the truth in love, we all things grow into him who is the head that is Christ. From him the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. The biblical notion of headship is about care rather than control. It's about responsibility rather than rule. So when a man says, I am the head, you will do this, he hasn't understood. Because here's the thing. Men, and I'm, I am stereotyping here, and I am generalizing, and I do apologize for this, but men very often run away from responsibility. So uh, you go to a man. I remember knocking on a man's door here when we do some door-to-door work once, and I told him I was from the church. Was he interested in God? He said, no, I'll get the wife because that's what the woman does. And you, you'd be amazed how many Christian men say, well, my wife will provide for the spiritual side of our family. Where did you get that from? My wife will look after the children. Where did you get that from? That's not in the Bible. That's the very antithesis of headship. Headship is about care. The characteristic is not so much lordship as saviorhood. And here's something for all men to consider. In effect... You are to act as the savior of your wife. Now that's really high standard, a really tough standard. But if that is the standard that's taken and understood by headship, then submission becomes a lot easier. Verse 24, where we're submitting like Christ. As the church submits to Christ, so wives should submit to their husbands. This is not an unthinking and unquestioning obedience to his rule, but rather a grateful acceptance of his care. I'm always wary when I meet women who say, and I've met a few from Christian groups who kind of go, it's really bizarre, they say, oh, I'm really into submission. And I immediately feel sorry for their husband. 
because they tend to be the most authoritarian and domineering women I've ever met in my life. And what they do is this. I will submit to my husband, but I will tell him what he's going to tell me. And he'd better get that right. And, and, and they think they're being biblical, but they're not being biblical at all. It's completely the wrong um, notion of the relationship. It is not the submission of the cat or the dog. It's voluntary, free, joyful, and thankful, mirroring the relationship of the believer to Christ. We submit to Christ out of love, trusting him and believing that he cares for us. The submission itself is an act of love. From a woman's point of view, this is putting yourself at your husband's disposal. And the bottom line is, don't get married to a guy you could not submit to. Just don't. You're really asking for trouble. There are concrete examples. For example, you're working away and your career requires you to move away, but your, your husband has work in a, let's say, here. Well, who goes? What do you decide? Oh, the person who's earning the most? Then it becomes a kind of competition. How does that work out? What do you do? You separate? Highest paid? How do you work it out? You pray together, not saying that it would always go this way, but if the husband felt that this was where God had called them as a family to live and the woman was not sure or even was against that, submission means you go along with it. The alternative, if you can come up with a better alternative than that that's realistic, then uh, I, I, I challenge you to do that. Let me add one other thing here. Like all authority, human authority, this is not about absolute submission. If a wife, if a husband tells a wife to go and do something that is clearly wrong, then she is bound not to submit to him in that. Then let's continue with the passage. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated his own body, but he feeds and cares for it just as Christ does the church, for we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. Now, this is hugely important. The opposite of submission is not rule. Paul doesn't say, wives submit to your husbands, and then husbands rule your wives. doesn't say that. He says, husbands love your wives. Of course, many, many relationships there is love, but it's what uh, the Greek word phileo comes to mean, from which you get Philadelphia, which carries this notion of, of friendship and warmth and so on. And you want that. But the word that Paul uses here is agape, which is the deepest kind of love, which is expressed of the love that God has for his son. And when it's in John 3, 16, God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. It is a self-sacrificial love. Now, when we talk about being in love, very often what that means is that person particularly attracts me. There are things about them. I love the way they look. I love the way they talk. I love their sense of humor because it appeals to me. But when Paul is speaking about love here, he's talking about something that is, doesn't exclude that, in fact includes it, but it's much more than it. Let me again quote from C.S. Lewis about uh, love and being in love. Well, not that, yeah, that's Isaiah, not C.S. Lewis. Lewis says this, the idea that being in love is the only reason for remaining married really leaves no room for marriage as a contract or promise at all. If love is the whole thing, 
then the promise can add nothing. And if it adds nothing, then it should not be made. The curious thing is that lovers themselves, while they remain really in love, know this better than those who just talk about love. As Chesterton pointed out, those who are in love have a natural inclination to bind themselves by promises. And of course, the promise made when I am in love and because I am in love to be true to the beloved as long as I live commits me to being true even if I cease to be in love. A promise must be about things that one can do, about actions. No one can promise to go on feeling in a certain way. He might as well promise never to have a headache or always to feel hungry. You can't do it. And when you get married, and we've got a, a, several weddings coming up, you're not standing here and saying, I promise to always feel in love with you. Because you can't promise that. You don't know that. Sometimes you might, sometimes you might not. But the issue about the Christian idea of marriage is that there is a commitment. Yes, it's based upon love and, and, and feeling in love and sexual attraction and romantic attraction and everything that's involved with that. But when you're getting married, you're saying, that's it. That is absolutely it. This is for life. It's as Christ loved the church. Now, again, that is incredibly countercultural. I met a man this week who, who said who's left his wife and is going with somebody else. And his whole justification for it, even as a Christian, is his feelings have changed. It just wasn't working out. He's fallen in love with someone else. To which the biblical answer is, so what? You made a promise. You do not back off from that. You just do not. It's the commitment that Christ made to the church. Isaiah 54, verses 5 to 8 For your maker is your husband. The Lord Almighty is his name. The Holy One of Israel is your redeemer. He is called the God of all the earth. The Lord will call you back as if you were a wife um, deserted and distressed in spirit. A wife who married young only to be rejected, says your God. And so on. The husband in a Christian marriage doesn't have a get out clause. Doesn't have a... You don't need to sing Paul McCartney's song, the Beatles song, when I get older, losing my hair many years from now, will you still be sending me a Valentine birthday greetings bottle of wine? I'm amazed that I know that off my heart. How sad. <laughs> will you still need me? Will you still feed me when I'm 64? You know, from a Christian point of view, when you're getting married, and it's way better not to get married than to not do this, you're saying, this is for life, this is for, for better or for worse. There's a televangelist called Pat Robertson. He should not have that name, Robertson. It's a shame to the clan. He re- he's absolutely awful. I mean, beyond awful. He, he's, I think he's become, becoming senile, and he's become wicked. Recently, on one of his shows, he was giving, answering a problem thing about uh, a man whose wife had Alzheimer's, and he said, it's okay, you can leave her because she's not what she was. That's not what you promised. Uh-uh, that's exactly what was promised. Exactly what was promised. You, we don't. Things... Every marriage I know goes through tough periods and difficult times. The marriage is based upon the promise that you will stick together and you will work at it. Wife submits to the husband. The reason a lot of women don't submit to their husbands is because they're terrified. They're scared. The reason a lot of husbands don't love their wives is because they're terrified and scared as well. We have to stop doing that. We have to focus on what God says in his word. 
In uh, Revelation, we read about the marriage supper of the Lamb. In 2 Corinthians 3, we read about sacrificial giving and steadfastness. You look at Christ's commitment to the church. He loved her, gave himself for her. There was a, a bridal bath which took place before the Jewish and the Greek weddings where there was the idea of cleansing. And Paul is bringing that imagery into this. Bringing that imagery of splendor and of the wedding dress, the glory being the radiance of God. On earth, he says, the church's nature is in rags and tatters. One day will be spotless and pure. Jesus does not crush the church. He sacrifices himself for her. A man should never use his headship to crush or stifle his wife, but he should always give himself for her in order that she may develop her full potential under God. No man should use the excuse of saying, well, I'm providing for my family by working, so that justifies me neglecting them. It doesn't. It doesn't. Gives a second example. We'll say, as I say, we'll say more about work this uh, evening. But he gives a second example. As they love their own bodies, Paul is being more and more realistic. I mean, as Christ loves the church is about as high a standard you can get. Well, you've got to love me as you love your own body. How does that work out? I've never met a man yet who neglects to feed his body. Or at least unless they're really, really sick. Paul is saying that as Christ cares for his body, as a man cares for his physical body, so it is the responsibility of husbands to give themselves for their wives. The man who thinks that he's obeying this by going, woman, where's my tea, has no concept of what is involved. The two here have become one. The husband and wife cannot treat each other as though they are separate entities, glorified flatmates. You leave and you cleave. You do not stay with your parents. You have a new family and a new base relationship. There should be an ongoing deeper and deeper union in a real and healthy marriage. Language that's used in Genesis 2.24. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother, be united to his wife. They'll become one flesh. 1 Corinthians 6.16, do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said the two will become one flesh. One psychologist says this, Paul displays a psychological insight into human sexuality which is altogether exceptional by first century standards. The sexual act is one by, which by reason of its very nature engages and expresses the whole personality in such a way as to constitute a unique mode of self-disclosure and self-commitment. That's why sex outside marriage is so wrong. That's why sex just as appetite is so wrong. Because it's not what God intended. It's a perversion. Now, some would argue, well, if that's such a high standard of marriage, who would dare to get married? It could be awful having such an intertwined life. But Paul says, no, no, it's great. If you follow these basic, basic principles. And he sums it up. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you must also love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Love and respect, that's what marriage is about. You both would to submit, if you like, because earlier in Ephesians 5, he talks about submission. And of course, there's to be mutual respect. But these particular emphases in the differences in the relationship 
It's worth following. It's not the headship of the authoritative husband, domineering. It is about leadership and initiative. It is, perhaps more than anything, about sacrifice and self-giving. There are way too many Christian marriages in trouble because these words have been ignored or forgotten. Too many husbands who do not love as Christ asked them to, and too many wives who do not submit as Christ asked them to. Some men will say, I I will love my wife as Christ did when she submits to me as she's told to. Some women will say, I will submit when my husband loves me. And the answer to that is, grow up, you're not children. When I was a child, I taught as a child. It's his fault, his fault, it's her fault. When you read this passage, you do not read it to say, like a wedding I did once, which was unbelievable. Uh, And I used this passage and wasn't a, a Christian wedding as such, but I used this passage and I spoke about it. And afterwards, this couple came up to me and the man looked at me and he said, when she submits to me, then I'll love her like that. And she looked at me, looked at him and said, you think I'm going to submit to that? And, you know, and she said, when he loves me like that, then I'll submit. I'm going, oh my goodness. You know, did you not hear a word? Because what they were doing was listening for one If only my wife was like that. I read this passage. I don't have to think about my wife. I have to think about me. How can I be a better husband? R.C. Sproul says there's probably nothing more than a man wants from his wife than her admiration. We have fragile egos. He's speaking about husbands. There's probably nothing more than a woman wants from her husband than his attention, taking her seriously and treating her with the greatest dignity. In other words, real respect and real love. But let me finish with this. And, and I apologize at one level for the length of this, but I also apologize for not going into this in any more depth. And please do talk about it and discuss it. And if you've got questions or maybe I've missaid something, you picked up the wrong way or whatever. But I do want to finish with this, what the passage tells us about Christ. Because look, I said, I'm talking about Christ. I'm talking about marriage, but I'm talking about Christ. And that's why if you're here and you're single, this applies to you. Some are married, some will never marry. Like Jesus, does that mean that you are less of a human being or will have a less fulfilled life? And you'll notice what I said at the beginning. Are you accusing Jesus of being lesser human, lesser fulfilled, because he wasn't married? Not at all. If you look for your fulfillment in your marriage, you've got it wrong. You've really got it wrong. You look for your your fulfillment in Christ. Each, Each of us ultimately gets our significance, not from our relationships in this life alone, important though they are, We get our significance from our relationship with Christ, which is why Paul says, I'm talking about Christ and the church. And incidentally, what a high view of the church. Sometimes you will hear somebody say, I'm not married, I'm single, but the church is my family. Almost as though that's a a secondary thing. It's a second best. I couldn't get married, couldn't have a real family, so I've got my church family. That's wrong, and I'll tell you why it's wrong. Because everyone, not just single people, but married people should be saying that as well. If we really understood the church, Christ loved the church and gave himself for her to make her holy, to present her as a radiant church. Christ cares for and feeds his church. The key question then for your life and for my life becomes this. It's not, are you married or will you be married? But are you in Christ? Do you belong to Christ? Because without him, everything else is meaningless.
We all have human families for good or for ill. But the great privilege we have in adoption is that we have the adoption of being brought into the family of God. And we are all equal within that family. And we are all loved within that family. So please don't ever set your marital status or lack of marital status over against your being in Christ. It all goes together. This is not that complicated. It's not that complicated. You don't need to read loads and loads of books on it. It's not that difficult to grasp. I accept it's difficult to put in practice. But if we keep our eyes focused on Christ, then you'll find what a difference that makes in your marriage. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your words. It's difficult for us to understand it because we ourselves are so bound by our experiences and by our culture. And we are so defensive in our emotions and so defensive about what we uh, feel, believe, think. And we get so hurt so quickly. Lord, we ask that you would help us. Pray for those who are married here uh, today. Pray for husbands that you would help us to love our wives so that uh, they would experience the care and the security that they should have and the freedom. Pray for wives. O oh Lord, we ask that there would be a godly honoring and respect and submission. We ask, O oh Lord, that you would correct the imbalances that are in our marriages and bring the right balance and give us wisdom and grace and forgiveness. We pray for those who are not married. And we ask, O oh Lord our God, for those who are about to be married or maybe married in the near future, that you will guide them in that way and that they would build their lives upon your principles and upon your love. And for those, O oh Lord, who have the gift of being single, grant that they may see it as a gift. And forgive, O oh Lord, those who in the church at times may look down on those who are single as, as somehow being in a less perfect position. That is just not the case. Lord, we ask that you would bless the family of the church. And as you loved your church and gave yourself for it, may we also love and give. May our lives be characterized by love and respect and submission. For we ask in your name. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. That's www.stpeters-dundee.org.uk. For information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, please visit the website of SOLAS, the Centre for Public Christianity, at solace-cpc.org. Once again, that's www.solas-cpc.org. Thanks for listening.